This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. I am Sarah Pankinier-Weld, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest, uh, director and producer Holly Morris, to virtually uh, to UC Santa Barbara for this event. Thank you so much for joining us today, Holly. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for asking. And um, I'm really looking forward to your important conference tomorrow. And also, side note, both of my parents went to UCSB. So I just realized that's another interesting connection. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, they must be very proud of you today. Uh, So we're very happy to find you here, even if it is only virtually, after waiting for a year, since your actual visit one year ago was first delayed and then made virtual by the pandemic. But I hope you can visit us uh, again uh, in the future in person. And this one-year delay, uh, which you were the first person to note to me, actually makes these events even more relevant since this year, uh, this very week, it is now 35 years ago since the Chernobyl disaster took place. And we're really grateful to have you here to speak with us uh, this evening and our audience, as also as part of the events surrounding uh, tomorrow's interdisciplinary conference, Fallout Chernobyl and the Ecology of Disaster. And we would love to extend a welcome uh, to this evening's audience to the conference tomorrow as well. And Holly, I'm sure I speak for all our audience when I say how much we appreciate this chance to view and discuss your award-winning and thought-provoking film, which seems so fitting as we remember the events at Chernobyl 35 years ago and consider their long-lasting fallout um, even today, like the lives of these, these women indicate. I'd also like to take a moment now to um, to acknowledge our sponsors that made this this possible: the College of Letters and Science and the TA Baron Environmental Fund, uh, the Department of Germanic and Slavic Studies, the Graduate Center for Literary Research, the Carsey Wolf Center. Thank you so much, as well as the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center, the Department of Global Studies, Comparative Literature, Environmental Studies, Cold War Studies, College of Creative Studies, and History Departments. So as you see, we're all very enthusiastic. <laughs> to have you here. So thank you. So as viewers have seen and watching your wonderful film, The Babushkas of Chernobyl takes viewers into the exclusion zone and into the intimate lives of a number of remarkable older women who chose to return to their homes within the exclusion zone around the Chernobyl power plant after the disaster. It touches upon a a wide range of interesting subjects, and I look forward to asking you about a number of these um, this evening and the time we have before we open uh, to audience questions questions as well. So I thought I would uh, start by asking you a question that I am imagining might be on the audience's mind, which is, um, what was it like to be there inside the exclusion zone and make this film? Well, it is a it is a singular place to be sure. Um, when I first went there, which was actually uh, for the twenty, uh, what would it have been the twentieth twenty twenty fifth anniversary of the accident. Um, I was there as part of a a film for a series called Globe Trekker I was doing for PBS. And we went there to cover the anniversary of the accident. And uh, quite honestly, I was quite nervous about it. And when negotiating our time, you know, one day in the zone and this and that, and I'm sure in the course of our talk, I'll I'll, I'll tell you uh, what it's like, but uh, it was, um, you don't know what to expect. Uh, I will tell you um, it is strangely gorgeous. Um, the, the natural world has come booming back in the absence of humans, for the most part, not too many humans, the wolves, the wild boar, all kinds of animal life has come back. And so because the enemy there is invisible, the radiation, it's, um, you have this sort of cognitive dissonance going on. On one hand, you see this beautiful place, and, and with all this life. And on another hand, you know that it, it was a site of, you know, a, a horrible disaster and uh, ongoing contamination. So it's a funny place to be. And the, and my first times there were, were quite scary, actually. And then you sort of get lulled into a kind of complacency. I mean, 
one is always mindful and following the radiation precautions, and we certainly did, but it's hard to stay on red alert. It's some, something about the human, about human nature. And I'm sure you'll be talking about this tomorrow in your conference, um, that you can know intellectually that it's very, and I'm sort of not speaking so much for myself, but for the people close who live there and in the area, like you can't live uh, in the state of a four alarm fire all the time. And that creates a lot of dangerous situation for people. I'm not talking about the Babushu so much that people in the region are also living in contaminated areas. Um, so I know I'm going on, uh, but like the zone itself is is arbitrary, right? You know, radiation spreads all over and you can't build a fence and call it safe on one side of the fence and not on the other. So so anyway, the the, the threat to to the human population is is um, ongoing, really. Thank you, Holly. I think you really, you know, blasted open all the possibilities and, and so many topics that I'd love to get into further and in, in further questions in the time that we have. Thank you. Um, it, it, you really uh, uh, bring up, bring us there um, and uh, with with all the uh, the thought provoking uh, implications that has. So I'd love to ask you now um, how you first discovered this story and decided to make this film. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I was there for this uh, essentially a travel program, Globe Trekker, and we were we filmed there for just two days. Went to the went to the reactor, went to Pripyat, um, and then uh, somewhere in the course of our time there, uh, with our our, uh, our our sort of monitor guide person mentioned uh, babushkas, and and uh, we saw evidence of people living inside the zone, and. We're like, you know, of course we 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 uh, that was just fascinating to me, and um, so we went and interviewed a woman named Hannah, who became one of the uh, film's primary characters uh, down the line, um, and she was she was remarkable. Um, and you know, we were there for such a brief period of time. After I came home, I kind of couldn't forget the the what it felt like there and who these women were, and I spent my career covering the stories of um, sort of unlikely heroines in, in um, risky environments sometimes. And uh, so I went back and did a long print piece for a magazine, a New York magazine, and um, really spent more time with, with people. Um, and then about a year after that, uh, began filming. So oh, it took you know, the, the story evolved in different ways. And um, it was quite important because um, you can't spend a ton of time there. Uh, you There are lots of limitations on, you You go into the zone, it's like a checkpoint, um, uh, you know, like a, like a border crossing and you have to, you know, be in for only a certain amount of days, a certain amount of hours a day, a certain amount of consecutive days. So it made the work of gathering the story challenging, but because I had done the print piece and, you know, I'd been back a number of times and gotten to know certain people, it sort of set the stage to make the film in a fairly efficient way. Um, meaning like, you know, you can shoot a documentary for, you know, years and hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage, but that wasn't possible in, in such a place. So we ended up, I think it was 18 days of shooting inside the zone over the course of two years. Um, so I'm wandering around, but that's sort of a production point. And then we filmed around the zone too, where we didn't need such special permission and um, precautions. Yeah, no, fascinating. And, and actually you anticipate also, um, uh, I'd love to ask you about how this fits, uh, this film fits into the context of your other work. And I'd love to hear, hear more about that. Yeah. Well, I started my uh, career in book publishing, feminist book publishing in the 90s in Seattle. And as a part of that, did a lot of work in um, international women's fiction and nonfiction and uh, women's health books and um, a lot of travel and adventure. Um, at the time, in the 90s, there weren't um, there wasn't a lot of that. I mean, luckily times have changed and the publishing culture has changed and there's more diversity and, and inclusion in terms of women in some of those genres. But, um, uh, but so I, we'd sort of knock ourselves out creating a book and sell five or 6,000 copies of this great translation of a, let me say a Ukrainian writer. And, um, and it felt like, um, frustrating, right? You know, I wanted to get the help get those stories out more. So I shifted into film and television, did a series called Adventure Divas, um, 
in you know around 2000 and um uh and that was a store an international uh sort of a, a part travel series part sort of feminist pilgrimage um i didn't tell the travel you know the the executives at the networks oh i'm making this crazy radical feminist you know <laughs> we're exploring cultures through the lens of you know it's radical women but um that wouldn't have gone over so big back then anyway um but that's what we were doing so we were celebrating cultures through the eyes of uh game, you know, women who are changing their communities. Um, that was, and then, uh, you know, uh, on from there doing different um, expedition projects and uh, always doing a globe trackers was sort of my side hustle uh, next to my independent projects and whether they were writing projects or film projects. So I guess the short answer is I've always wanted to uh, try to work in media and try to tell let the characters um, tell stories that have been told in some, like, you know, the first Adventure Divas project I did was in Cuba because, you know, Cuba was this sort of misunderstood place. And, you know, you heard, uh, this was a while ago, uh, still misunderstood though, but, it, um, uh, you know, you heard about Castro and a couple other characters and Che and, and communism. And, you know, that was a, one part of a, a, a story. Um, and so, so telling the story of whether it's Cuba or Chernobyl, but through the lens of women and, and people who don't necessarily get to be the narrators of the story very often. So you don't find a bunch of 80 year old women who, who get to tell the story of Chernobyl, but by doing that and, and honoring their experience, I think we get a whole broader, uh, look at the Chernobyl accident uh, and culture. And um, so it's, it's much more than, you know, the events of 1986 and, um, you know, three-legged deer kind of thing, which becomes often the, the takeaway in, uh, in stories around Chernobyl. Yes, and also the, the depth of past experience too, which we might have a chance to, to get to um, even before, even before Chern Chernobyl, all of it uh, coalesces here in your film. Uh, thank you, and with through this beautiful angle that you achieve. Um, I'd love to hear more about the experience of, you know, gathering these stories. So we get a very intimate experience of entering into the homes and the culture, the language, and the lives of these women, um, these extraordinary women who have lived extraordinary uh, lives. Uh, and I wonder, was it hard to gain their trust and get access to their lives and experience? And did any language barriers get in the way? Uh, I will tell you that um, we had a wonderful translator and sort of local producer named Marina Orkova. And she, um, she made it so much possible, you know, um, in terms of, because not only, well, the women spoke Ukrainian and Russian generally, um, uh, but also dialects, regional dialects. So there are not too many people who could cover all those bases and also work in the context of a film. So I wanna give her a lot of credit for um, the intimacy that you see in that film. That being said, I do think that, you know, I, I, there were some people who weren't interested in being filmed, but, but for the most part, you know, people were incredibly warm and, um, and uh, welcoming. And if you've ever spent time with any babushka, you know, like you kind of have to sit down and have some dumplings and some moonshine before, you know, definitely before you can roll the cameras and um so of course that gets complicated in a place like chernobyl where those are absolutely the things you shouldn't um take part in but um I, I will tell you a short story one time we were filming and we went into a someone's house and i, I think this was um this was when i was uh, for the newspaper art or the magazine article and uh this was just outside the village but it was this uh, outside the, the zone and and we went in this house and we we're talking to this woman and she picked up a phone she actually had a phone which is unusual and she said um she called her neighbors and said quick come over there's interesting people here and they're not missionaries <laughs> so it's like you know it was um part of it was simple human connection and uh because you know the the sad truth is i mean there's a lot of affirmation and love and humor and stuff in the film i think 
but there's also a lot of suffering and loneliness uh, in the Chernobyl zone. Uh, it's not easy to be there. So, um, so yeah, so we, we, we found it, um, you know, someone said, oh, is it difficult to get them to talk? And I'm like, yeah, you know, actually we have more trouble getting them to stop talking sometimes when we were filming, um, which was another lovely part of it. Cause as we were saying before we went live here, um, some of the best moments I feel in the film are things that weren't during an interview. They were just verite moments when we were filming and we, we caught their natural conversations and their relationships and their values and the things they were proud of. And often it was some months later, there were little, little nuggets inside the film of once we got them translated at home, um, home in Brooklyn, um, you know, even, even more of their story was able to come out on the screen. We, um, your colleague pointed out the moment when Hannah um, was sort of arguing with her friend about blessing the moonshine. And um, that was one of those moments that in the, it, while we were filming, we didn't even know what had happened. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Holly. And I, I love how, actually I see uh, similarities now in, in your work with, you know, as a film and what a film does in terms of opening up a pathway and we see something we couldn't, couldn't possibly ever see. And I love the way you're talking about language too, as this kind of bridge that opens up these opportunities. As a professor of Russian, I'm you know, thrilled to, uh, to, to have you say that um, as well. And I think languages can also open, open opportunities and your, family, your film does, does both. Um, using I wanted both. to add one thing you asked about connecting. Um, we had a wonderful cinematographer named Jay Fit Weeks, who was an American, but he spoke fluent Russian. And um, that also made all the difference. They, uh, the characters just loved him. He's just sort of good looking, strapping guy who spoke fluent Russian. And, you know, it was really fantastic. Sometimes he would have to like haul the water and stuff before they, they'd sit down for an interview though. <laughs> so a kind of key to unlock the door too. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. I'd love to hear about uh, if there were aspects of this project. You've told about the the story of its making and how how that evolved. But were there aspects of the project that evolved unexpectedly, or did your opinion of these women and their choices evolve, you know, over time as you were making the film or or producing it back home? Yeah, it really it did evolve. Um, I think that going in, I I. I, I, my first impression when I heard uh, about the community there and saw them was like, what are they, are they crazy, you know, and, and are they sick? And uh, I think that over the course of time and, and coming to truly understand the larger, more nuanced picture, I think that I thought I was going in making a film about Chernobyl and I think I came out making a film about home. And, and that was what really sort of just rose to the surface when, when their true realities and what drove them uh, were, were, came out or at least became apparent to me. And um, so it became this complicated story film-wise and I hope we achieved what we wanted to, which is that Yes, obviously, or well, maybe not obviously. I mean, Chernobyl is a dangerous place and the disaster was a, a horrible thing and it is not that they haven't been exposed to serious health risks. Uh, however, the palliative powers of home and living a self-determined life are also real things. So when you look at what happened to the babushkas who accepted relocation, who moved into the cities after a life in a, you know, in, in the a beloved village on their, their motherland, and then they lived in an apartment in a city, there were ha negative health outcomes to that. And so it becomes a complicated equation. And I, I wanted that to be present in the, to the, in the film. So it, it wasn't a simple story of disaster or a simple story of, of overblown um, concerns about health, because that's not true either. Yeah, no, thank you. I think you really open up the paradoxes. I think you achieved that, that goal of, of getting exactly that across um, and that we, we go through that evolution, I think, watching the film. 
Uh, now, when I was rewatching the film, um, I was struck by your choice, the way that you begin the film um, uh, with one older woman's seemingly normal life and her interactions with nature before you add these these things, um, these details about Chernobyl, for example, um, and illuminate the invisible hazards more and more. And I'd love to, I have may have some suspicions, but I'd love to hear, you know, why you choose to start there the way you do. Yeah, so the film starts with Valentina, who is going out fishing, as she does uh, every day. And um, it's this long walk with some traditional music, um, and she's just sort of singing to herself. And I think it's, uh, I, I loved it. And I'm an angler myself. So I had an, a soft spot for her fishing passion, but um, the, the image embodied a lot because it was, first of all, it's an old woman being, you know, talking to herself, being happy, going down to fish in a river that's quite contaminated. You know, once you, you realize you're in the Chernobyl zone and um, uh and 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 then she turns to the camera at the end and says, you know, I'm never going to leave something to that effect. You have to shoot me. I'm staying here. And that encapsulated, I think, the core message from from a, a lot of the women we talked to there. Um, but also it told you pretty quickly that this is not going to be your typical Chernobyl film. And it didn't start with, I mean, we did have to, to then rewind and remind people what the Chernobyl disaster was when it happened, the gravity of it. And then we did that, but it was, it, it was not the, um, the fuel in which this, that this film was going to drive on. And um, so that's, those are some of the reasons we chose that. I will tell you the film that I have coming out in the fall is an expedition film, a polar expedition film. And it starts with uh, one of the characters, a, pa- uh, a Pakistani character in a, in a hijab pulling a, pulling a tire through the streets of industrial Manchester, England. So it's, um, I think, another way of like saying this is not your father's expedition film or whatever it may be, but it's a story that, that she's driving this ship uh, and she's going to tell the story and this is her story. Um, and so, so that's, that was with, with same with Valentina and the fishing. Yeah. And you, you do indeed tell it, you know, a very human uh, story. Absolutely. Uh, thank you. And I'd, I'd love to return to the mention of nature you made at the beginning in response to my first question and in thinking about also the ecology of disaster, um, our, our conference and thinking about the ecological impact. Uh, so in your film, you have the quote here in the exclusion zone, life never stopped. Nature just took over. And I'd love to hear more about the nature of the area and this natural resurgence that that we hear about or evidence to the contrary. Yeah, yeah. You might. Um, I, I'm not a scientist, but um, I will tell you from a layperson's perspective. Yes, so one is immediately taken by the beauty and the uh, of the area and the fact that there's been um, because the the absence of human uh, humans has been uh, you know relative. So when there were humans there, right, they were taking out the animals. The animals couldn't survive. When there are not humans, they came surging back. So you have wild horses, you have wild boar, you have deer, and I think there's some even some bear. And um, and all. so it's become this sort of unlikely wildlife refuge. It's not to say that those animals themselves have not, and again, you, you know more about this than me, but it's not to say they haven't had negative effects from the radiation. They have, you know, um, and that's an ongoing area of study. And, you know, for example, some species who would have, you know, three young would only have one and, you know, things like that. So there are physiological impacts. Um, but, you know, to the lay eye, you just sort of see this crazy sort of nature reserve and not reserve, but, you know, nature, it just looks like it's um, booming. Uh, and, you know, animals coming in and out of, uh, you know, abandoned houses and, and, and it's just kind of, it's very surreal. Um, so I know there's lots of studies going on, ongoing about the animals, um, in the region. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I'm not sure of the latest information. I mean, the, the, there's also there's all there's also lots of myths, right? You know, like there was the uh, uh, containment pond for the water from the nuclear plant, and there's giant giant fish in it, like you know, huge catfish. I think they're catfish, from what I could tell. And um, you know, the I believe the myth is, oh, they're giant because they're radioactive, these giant radioactive fish. But the reality is the workers of the zone like throw them bread and they're sort of like fattened up, you know, by that. And um, so, and then there's the kind of mythology around, you know, all the animals are born with, you know, missing a leg and sort of dramatic aberrations, which I don't think is true. But like I said, first of all, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a scientist, but there are plenty of um, adverse effects on the animals. It's just that they're not quite as obvious as, as the stereotype might lend itself to. Yeah, and thinking about the, you know, the, the, the impact of the removal of humans from the area in terms of animals. Right. Very I mean, another interesting story, which I never covered, and it's not in the film, is that, you know, it's tough times economically in Ukraine and people are hunting for food. And, and so there is a sort of culture, small illegal subculture of people hunting inside the zone. And that's super dangerous because if you go there, what you'll, the first thing you'll be told is don't eat anything. That's the most important thing is not to eat food that's been grown there or in the case of animals that's grown up there. But there are, there is hunting that goes on illegally. And also, of course, animals are animals. They leave the zone uh, and, and are hunted outside the zone. Um, I know that the Sami people and the reindeer in Northern um, Norway and up there in different places are, are um, quite um, have a lot of radioactive contamination within the reindeer because they love the moss, right? And and they they eat the moss and the people eat the reindeer. So there's sort of just ongoing. Uh, I also I believe also again probably a lot of people on this call know know more about this than I do. But the wild boar in in Germany and other Eastern European countries. Uh, because of the contamination from, from Chernobyl and their affinity for moss and mushrooms and the things that retain contaminants, uh, that these animals are, are pretty contaminated still. Yeah, the, the long-term effects of the fallout, absolutely. Uh, I'd love to shift a little bit here and, and returning also to, to the, the themes of your past work uh, and thinking about the experiences of women here and these supportive communities of women that emerge so strongly in your film. So, uh, and, and mostly it is women living in here. And I'd love to hear more about these communities of women and whether you think, and you alluded to this already, but the significance of these, uh, these communities in terms of uh, uh, promoting uh, their longevity and well-being despite the circumstances in which they live. Right. Well, I think yes. Yeah, so, so maintaining connection to their the home their their homeland and where they grew up and the graves of their their parents or their children and all of those things I think are uh, contributed to their uh, survival and and also the fact that the the the, the returnees um, maintain community for many, for decades. Um, now, I mean, I will say that at the time we were making the film, there were some 200 ish people inside the zone. And now I think it's around, uh, 50. So their numbers are quite, are dwindling and the communities are less robust and people are old, you know, simply older, uh, you know, in their eighties, and up. Um, but I do feel that for part of their survival over time was because they did have community. And, um, and also, I think there was the luck of the draw. I mean, some villages got quite contaminated, and other villages didn't because of the nature of this uh, nuclear, it was a nuclear fire that lasted for, I don't know, like something like two weeks, I can't remember, 11 days, two weeks. And um, and it, so it spread all over unevenly. So some villages were super contaminated and people were, and were buried, right? They just literally buried as a remediation tactic. Others 
were contaminated, quite contaminated, not buried. Others were just less contaminated. And so it was a bit of a checkerboard and, um, and unpredictable uh, how just sort of in terms of the physical uh, contamination, how that would go. Um, but, but yes, like I said earlier, I think the community idea um, and the connection to home uh, are factors in one's health. And I think that relocation trauma is a very real thing. And uh, that, um, you know, you see it in relocated peoples all over the world, not maybe, you know, whether it's refugees or, or ecological disaster, whatever it may be. Um, there's, there's higher rates of unemployment, alcoholism, all, all kinds of things that go with the trauma of relocation. So by staying, they were able to avoid that. Um, also one kind of important thing, you know, medically speaking, is that these women uh, were old, you know, considered old, I mean, in their 50s, which I don't think is that old, but uh, at the time of the accident. And older animals, including people here, are um, less affected, less negative effects of radiation. Um, so the children, for example, of Chernobyl, uh, you know, had had the worst uh, time of it all. And in, even now you cannot go into the uh, zone if you're under 18. Um, so, so because they were older when they, they had this experience, um, you know, it, it impacted them a little bit less and there's lots of thyroid cancer and whatnot, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that, that is another factor in it all. When they came back, they were sneaking back into the zone, you know, literally, cause it, it, first the authority said, nobody can come back. Nobody can come back. And then people would sneak back and they sometimes relocate them again and they sneak back again. And finally they kind of just said, okay, let the old, let the, let the old people stay. They'll die, but they'll die happy on their motherland and they're old anyway. Um, and, uh, but in fact, you know, that's not exactly how it all played out. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to follow up on that. You know, this fierce independence and self-determination and self-sufficiency these, these women show, um, is really remarkable. Um, and I find myself, you know, also thinking about, um, how they might be rejecting aspects of life outside the exclusion zone, um, where, because as you say, because of their love for their, their motherland, their, their home villages, um, that they feel like they would be worse off there. So do you then paradoxically find that they, these women get a, a greater sense of freedom here um, within the exclusion zone? And, uh, and are they also able to exercise uh, more freedom precisely because they are older older women, that they somehow get to um, step outside of these, um, uh, these restrictions that, that are governing uh, right. choices for other people? Well, they are definitely living outside the restrictions of the zone. I mean, technically speaking, no one is supposed to be there, even though they've, for, for decades now, they've turned a blind eye. They, meaning the authorities of the zone, have turned a blind eye and they've become you know, part of the culture of it. Um, so on one hand, that offers them freedom. On the other hand, you know, I, I will say that there's a certain amount of fear among the women I talk to that they will still be removed. I mean, it's not actually, it will, will not happen. And, and I'm quite sure of that. But there was always this fear because they were essentially there illegally. And there was a sense of we won't, get our pensions, you know, which is pretty serious. Um, so, you know, on one hand it, it is, there is the sense of, I mean, it's more the, I mean, there are a lot of downsides. I mean, I, I don't want to glorify their existence too much because it is extremely hard. And, you know, a lot of the services that were extended to them early on, like, uh, early on in the, in, you know, post-disaster, there was a regular bus that went to a, a, a town outside of the, of the zone where they could get groceries, things like that. And as the economies deteriorated and the numbers of returnees are dwindling, some of the services that were afforded them, healthcare, for example, like a doctor would go around periodically. 
that's gone away, you know, so they're even more um, alone and, uh, you know, that's not good. Um, so, yes, I would say, you know, a lot of the most, I would say, of the women we talked to had the opportunity to leave, you know, like their adult children said, come live with me or whatever. Not everybody, but for many of them. And they chose not to, even though it meant that their, their opportunities to see their own kids was then limited uh, because they're only, they can only come in, a, you know, a couple times a year, things like that. So, yeah, overall, I'd say it, it adds up to freedom, but there's a price to it. Certainly. Yeah. And I'd love to follow up on this theme. And we, we spoke about this actually a little bit before we began too, about the, the place of fear um, in the film and in the filmmaking and in these women's lives. So they said, you know, don't be afraid of us. We don't contain radiation. But we also glimpse, uh, no doubt deliberately, uh, fear, like when the Geiger counters or the scientists um, who are coming disrupt their, their usual lives and, and maybe the kind of ignorance um, that, that is bliss, right, of, of the exact impact. So did you see a lot of evidence of this, of fear? And what was it like as a visitor? Did the presence of fear change over time? Well, I mean, I think... Well, there was the fear as a visitor, but that what a visitor has. But in terms of their fear, uh, as I mentioned, there's a little, there was some fear of the authorities, just, just in fact that, that somebody will move them, essentially. Like they're going to try to make us all live in the same village or, or, or make us leave the zone. Though that was a real fear that was, I think, I feel somewhat unfounded, but ultimately it was a real fear. But of course, the fear of contamination. I mean, it, some people were, you know, uh, as Hannah said in the film, radiation doesn't scare me, starvation does. Because she is a woman who, who um, was, world, you know, an infant during, you know, when Stalin and his thugs were there, right? So she, and they were, star they starved that population. And so she, just tells a story of narrowly, I don't, it's not in the film, but narrowly escaping being, you know, they were, the, 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 the villagers were turning to some pretty horrible means to stay alive. And so she barely survived Stalin's famines. And so radiation meant nothing to her. She's like, radiation doesn't scare me, starvation does. And that is a value she held throughout. She would never leave. Now, the woman in the, um, with the mushrooms, with the Geiger counters. Uh, so periodically, uh, we call them the eco-testers, but these sort of scientists periodically came around and tested the water. And these were Ukrainian officials and um, the water and the food and, and um, uh, the, 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 the decimeter goes off quite with those, with those mushrooms because mushrooms have a very again, have are, are one of the things that grows that that really um, maintains the contamination. And, you know, that scared her. And, uh, you know, there, she's, she's not dumb. She knows, you know, that there's been a nuclear disaster in the uh, around that. But I do think that it's not just the women in the zone, people of the whole region, there can be a certain amount of complacency around the food. But that and from my perspective, you know, they may think I'm, I wouldn't agree with me, but, um, but yeah, she was scared. She, she knew that those were contaminated and you don't hear it on a daily basis, but when a guy shows up twice a year and confirms something, but it, you might notice in the film, he kind of went, don't kind of like, don't tell her, you know, like, let's just move on because I, I believe his perspective was yes, they're contaminated. Yes yes, she's going to eat them. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's again, part of this sort of narrative around the women of like, let them just be happy and live their lives and not, not put fear into them at this point. So, you know, I don't know the morality around all that. I mean, people are um, in the region, you know, uh, afforded a certain amount of, um, you know, I guess money to, to, to sort of compensate, to get clean food. But it, as I understand it, it's, it's not a system that really works and it's very little money. Uh, so it really, it's sort of like, uh, 
yeah, so I don't think that's relevant for the women in the zone. They're growing their own food. They're eating their own food. Sometimes their adult kids bring them meat and things like that. Yeah, thank you. I found myself thinking um, about how, you know, these women and older women in general act as kinds of custodians of culture, memory, and place. And, you know, as you said, the, the numbers are, are dwindling, uh, you know, based on, from 200 to, to 50. Um, so did you also feel that these women are kind of repositories of memory, like the herbal knowledge, one of them was, was yeah. sharing or these memories of Chernobyl and even of the past as I'm glad you brought that in. Cause otherwise I would have liked to of these past traumas that have shaped these women and made them able to, uh, to withstand, um, something like this. So I'm wondering if the film is, you know, consciously trying to, to preserve these, uh, these yeah, things. we, we tried to, um, by bringing up the past in terms of what the region has survived in the past and how, uh, as I said, Hannah might compare surviving Stalin to an invisible enemy, you know, which is sort of abstract to her. Um, uh, I also think we, we tried to bring uh, traditional music into it and their singing. Um, we had lots of actually tons of footage of singing often people would break into song um, and use that wherever we could. Um, you know, there was, there was a scene, a couple of scenes about of the women who were relocated. They were in a town outside the village and um, such sadness uh, there and um, such loss. And um, the songs, the mournful songs they sang were just, you know, pretty heartbreaking. And they were still singing about the village. They, had left, you know, they had been forced out of that had been buried 35 years ago um, and still grieving that. Um, so, so, so to, to, in order to preserve the culture, yeah, I mean, I think these women are the last reservoirs because as, as you know, and, and the people on this call know that there's very, um, as I understand it, you know, uh, the cultures are quite regional, right? You know, it could be a, a songs from a certain village or, or food from a certain region or, you know, whatever. And, and there's this huge area where that's all going to die. All those, that knowledge and all that music and all that culture will die with them. Uh, and their children left at too young of age to have absorbed it all. And, um, I will just as an aside mention that that someone, uh, a wonderful playwright named Amy Wheeler and some colleagues are making a play based on uh, the babushkas of Chernobyl. And it's going to be a musical and it's they're doing all this incredible working with these Ukrainian uh, regional musicians and and um, songwriters and um, sort of, again, trying to preserve preserve some of these um cultural elements, especially music. Yeah, and as, as your film also does, and kind of encapsulating and preserving these, these stories. Uh, and, and thank you for, you know, uh, uh, helping us to anticipate this, this kind of follow-up to, to this project and also, you know, mentioning some other work uh, that we can look forward to of yours um, in, the, uh, in the Arctic. Um, and I'd love to turn it now to some audience questions. Um, and I'd like to um, begin with a question uh, from uh, Ryan Kenyon, who asks, when was the last time you spoke with the babushkas? Also, do you know if they are okay since, you know, with uh, COVID and everything? Yeah, well, you know, ironically, they're, they're quite protected from um, COVID, I believe, because they don't really see anybody. Uh, so as far as I know, COVID hasn't entered the zone. I mean, probably the, the, the zone workers, there's, a, there's an amount of COVID there because there are plenty of people who still work maintaining the defunct uh, reactor and uh, the borders and whatnot. Um, but let's see, um, uh, as far as I know, COVID hasn't been an issue and I, I suspect they're probably okay given their significant isolation. Um, they live the life that we've all lived for the last year, except no internet. Um, so Marina uh, spoke to them 
maybe I haven't spoken to anybody in just a while. We went, uh, but Marina had sort of went into the zone and we passed messages back and forth. Um, after the film came out, we returned to the zone and did a little, um, we did a screening because of course, as we know, the women want to stay home. They didn't want to come out to a film festival, but we did a screening uh, in Hannah's village and we went around the zone and picked up all the characters and did it. And it was an unbelievable experience, uh, which I could go on and on about winter time, but it was really good. Um, and we're going to we're going to, uh, we filmed that experience. And so we'll do a DVD extra soon, something like that. Oh, well, I'll look forward to that. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we also have questions about, um, from the audience about, uh, and I would have otherwise asked about this too, the, the juxtaposition between these uh, older women living there under, under certain circumstances, and then um, the, the young men stalkers who come in and these kinds of intergenerational count encounters that we see. So um, uh, Jeff asks, one of the most striking moments for me was the encounter between one of the babushkas and the group of stalkers. Uh, seeking out Pripyat. While we see a scientist condemn these stalkers as intrusive elements earlier on, how did you view, view their presence in the scope of your documentary in contrast to the sense of home established throughout? So I think that they were um, in a way, in their own way, it was a coming home for them as well, because this was the uh, sort of ground zero of the tragedy in their own lives, even though they had a different experience of it as the babushkas. I also think, you know, they kind of represented this generation, the younger generation, the grandchildren of these babushkas, even though they weren't necessarily literally, literally the grandchildren. Um, and um, so I don't think they were just thrill seek. My, my feeling is it was something deeper than just thrill seeking or reckless, you know, reckless activity. People feel really drawn to the zone and as dangerous as it is, um, that's, that's genuine. Yeah, I appreciate very much how the, the film, you know, really uncovers these, these powerful, you know, human motivations and the deeper stories there. Tyler, for example, was asking, I was really moved by the scenes showing the babushkas cultivating food in their gardens and foraging mushrooms in particular, given the scene that features a scientist describing the way mushrooms grow in enormous networks that spread out across political and administrative boundaries, absorbing radiation from areas far from where they are actually foraged. It reminded me of my own Ukrainian grandmother's deep love of foraging and respect for the land. Can you speak a bit how these practices of cultivation become risky, political, not only in the context of nuclear fallout, but also given the histories of famine, forcible agricultural reform, and so on in the former USSR? Yeah, no, that's that's very insightful. I would just say it's just there's such a deep cultural component too. To I mean, I, mean, I sort of joked about you have to sit down and eat a meal um, before you can roll a camera, but I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the, there's so much um, human uh, connection and hospitality and, and how you show love for one, uh, love and gratitude and hospitality and all these things. So, so that's a factor too. It's, um, it's not just preg, it's, it's not just about sustenance, uh, the traditional kind of sustenance. Yeah, so much culture, you know, wrapped up in food. That, that must have been interesting to, to navigate there, too, as a, as a visitor. Uh, they, they would laugh at us because we'd, like, bring a cake from Kiev and be like, we've brought our own food, you know, because we didn't want to eat the local mushrooms and whatnot. And they would laugh and say, you're so scared of radiation. And we're like, yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> so that returns to this, this issue, too, of, you know, of, of like kind of cultures, building bridges across cultures where the cultures are also sort of just inside and outside the zone, right? Not necessarily by, uh, by nation or um, uh, but by, by practices, living practices. Thank you. I'd love to share also a question from Lisbeth, who was asking, uh, about how you center the lives of women and whether you interviewed any of their children and mm -hmm. consider including their perspectives, their stories or feelings. Mm -hmm. We did. Um, I don't believe there's anything in the film, but we actually, for a long time, there was, it ended up getting something that cut out. There was a woman named Valentina, a different Valentina. And um, we, uh, her daughter was probably in her forties and we um, interviewed her and spent time with her. She lives out in, outside the zone and we 
we filmed with her, actually we made a short film, a separate short film, but, and she, she ha was evacuated from Pripyat. She worked at Pripyat, at the, at the, at, she worked at the nuclear power plant. And um, so we went back with her to her um, apartment where she had to evacuate on a moment's notice. Well, they were told they were gonna be evacuated for two days and it was, you know, now 35 years, but like you, we go back to her apartment and there's, you know, her shoes are still there and all this kind of thing. And it was very emotional for her and her mother still lives in the zone. Her mother has since passed away, but um, yeah. So, I mean, the generational trauma is, is huge. And even though uh, not many people are left in the zone, the impacts of life there before and after are, uh, you know, uh, you can't underestimate them. Yeah, and this this kind of disruption of that that continuity too of the, the dislocation um, also of of generations. I think that's really powerful and 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 connects to with this theme of of the fallout, you know, and the ecology of disaster um, more broadly. So I, I want to take this opportunity to thank you so much, Holly, for uh, for coming uh, virtually to join us and, and giving us this opportunity to engage and, and ask questions about about your fabulous film, uh, which uh, um, we can all return to as well. And I wanted to thank also the uh, the audience for joining us today. And I wanted to conclude by you know mentioning how how much I think your film really resonates in new ways, and probably will continue to resonate in new ways. You know, as uh, uh, as the future as the future moves on um, in these, as you indicate to these times of isolation and fear and contamination, um, and all those impacts, uh, how they're uh, affecting us today. So you know, I think it can be perhaps a continually a new film in that way as well. Climate refugees, you know, will be. So a lot of uh, will be a lot of overlapping thing themes in there, I think. Absolutely. And, and I, let me also thank you, too, for, you know, opening up all these subjects, which we hope to continue with um, in the conference tomorrow, to which uh, everyone is invited uh, to join us as well. Exactly. Because uh, what happened in Chernobyl 35 years ago, you know, is also, uh, you know, showcasing what, you know, ecological disaster looks like. And exactly as you as you indicate, you know, climate change and um, impacts. This is perhaps we can gain a lot of wisdom um, from these extraordinary women <laughs> whose stories you share, right, um, who are these kind of custodians of these memories and these experiences. And maybe as we face our own modern day challenges, we can learn something from the, the fierce spirit and indomitable will of these um, babushkas of Chernobyl. So thank you so much, Holly. Thank, thank you for having me and good luck with the conference. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.